0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no
1: stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be a film. I know, check me out. Uh, because there's a new release coming out, March 2021, in the USA. I'm not sure when in, in the UK and Europe and the rest of the world. But it's titled Shoplifters of the World. It's based in 1987, Denver, and uh, it's one crazy night in the lives of four friends who are reading from the demise and the breakup of the Smiths. And during the evening, lots of excitement happens, as well as uh, one of the gang decided to hijack the local radio station and uh, makes the heavy metal DJ play Smith's tracks all night, which sounds like a good idea. Anyway, I re- recently spoke to the director, Stephen Kiak. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. Sorry if it's not. Um, To find out more about, well, life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. And after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was the reasons and uh, the 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 fruition of this film. Stephen, it's over to you.
0: How it happened for me. Well, to tell the long, boring story, I I had been toying with uh, an idea based around me and my friends one summer uh, where we grew up on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, you know, little c- seaside town. Um, and, you know, it was our, our kind of the summer of our new wave awakening, right? Uh, my friends uh, and I were working at a grocery store and the where we live uh, on the Cape, it's a little peninsula in Massachusetts, right? A lot of, it's very seasonal, a lot of beach people come, summer people show up. And uh, one year this girl showed up um, our age, got a job at the supermarket um, and she was from the big city, right? She was from Boston. And uh, she just like, was the coolest thing that ever blew through, you know, and just uh, had this incredible personality. Um, Her parents had this cute little house on the beach and they were always away. So it would always end up at her place for parties. Um, Or we would just be hanging out, and she had the best record collection. You know, I remember us dancing around to Japanese Whispers by The Cure. She had, you know, played the Cocteau Twins and the Jesus and Mary chain, and we're big into Japan, and and obviously we loved the Smiths. Um, You know, and her bisexual friend from the city came with some of his friends one time, and oh, that blew our minds. and we had like a little bit of a love triangle going you know like she was crushed on my friend and i secretly was crushed out on him and it was just this innocent sweet little summer of shenanigans and music um and so i i for about a year i've been was just trying to figure out what this was i had the characters but i didn't really have a story per se and then uh someone a friend of mine uh, who grew up in denver uh and I, she was here in, uh, in LA at the time. We were just drinking one night and said, "Do you remember that thing that happened in Denver when the Smiths broke up?" Uh, and I hadn't heard of it, and so she filled me in on this this urban myth of the the fan holding up the station, uh, forcing them to play the Smiths all night on the eve of their the band's breakup. And she said that would be a great film, wouldn't it? And I thought, you know what yeah, and I know now I know what to do. I'm going to take my kids and I'm going to just transpose them to Denver. And I'm just going to drop my characters into this new setting. And we have a one night in the life of movie. And it, the two of us kind of just cracked the story over the next number of months. And just, uh, you know, and we were off and running. And then, you know, 12 years later. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it was just that kind of thing where it, it, the, the ideas kind of collided. I love the idea of this urban myth. Um, I know a lot of, I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, they've just ripped off the plot of Airheads. Like actually Airheads was most likely inspired by this actual incident, if at all. Uh, it really bears very little to do with what we've done. Uh, and, you know, at the time, um, this myths were everything to us, you know, but we we were experiencing it as suburban American kids it was all kind of filtered through several mm. layers you know but it still gave us this um, amazing insight into the world of music at that time that was happening in the UK you know which was our dream to go to London and to be a part of all that you know it it just it just was fulfilling a fantasy you know um, and so to crack the story and try to tell something that was Authentic to our little, you know, new wave, new wave nerd lives at the time. Yeah. But was just wrapped up in this myth and this music. Um, just felt like a great thing to do, you know. Um, I come from, you know, music films is, is my bread and butter. Um, it's really where I live and where I've excelled. And I'd started out as a writer, director. And then documentary kind of took me on this long winding path. Um. So it was. I really was looking to get back to it, and to get back there with a through music. Just it was, it was just great, great fun to 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 write and to develop the whole thing. And uh, but yeah, you need the thumbs up on Twenty Smith songs before you can roll the camera. So that therein lies the problem of <laughs> you know the length of time it took to actually get it on the screen.
1: Right. So uh, slightly, you know, on that kind of just the practical element. So you had this idea 12 years ago. Obviously, as with a lot of ideas, you know, you have it, have them sort of late at night after drinking too much or whatever, mm-hmm. smoking too much. And then you wake up the next morning going, Oh my God, I hope no one remembers that idea that I had that we all agreed on. And thankfully, most people don't. But on this occasion, you ran with it 12 years ago. It started. Mm-hmm. That
0: is amazing. Yeah. Um, well, it just, cause it just had a, it just felt like, it, it just felt alive, you know. Um, and it was just a lot of fun. And it was something I was wanting to do. I was looking for something new to write. Um, actually, and I think my friend who has the story credit on it, had initially, she wrote the treatment. She kind of shaped out the night, adding in some kind of Denver, you know, 80s Denver landmarks and hot spots. you know, like Muddy's Cafe, and this, you know, Wax Tracks Records, and gay bar up on the wrong side of the t- tracks kind of thing that would have been like a typical night out for her and her her mates um and then you know she moved back to England and started working and we just it was sitting there I said like, I really need a script and I think I'm just going to do it myself like let me just get in there and and it was one of those, it wouldn't like didn't necessarily say it wrote itself, but it it came together fast. Yes. Um, but then I'm in a way, I'm glad we took the time because then what I decided I wanted to do was like the way the lyrics are built and all the referential imagery surrounding the Smiths. I, I wanted to then start to thread it in and create almost like a metafiction out of it. You know, it's it's one thing to have them quote a few lyrics, but then you know, it's it's like, well then where did he steal those lyrics from? Okay, there's Oscar Wilde, there's Sheryl Delaney, there's, you know, there's novels, there's movies, there's Saturday night and Sunday morning, there's Billy Lyre. There's all this, the the inspirational world is all there. So then I spend time just reading and watching all of that, <laughs> you know, flicking through the Mazepedia, which is such a good reference point. Um, and you know, interviews, the crazy uh, pen pal letters, right? The Robert Mackey letters, which are a scream if you <laughs> get your hands on them. And just collecting lines and references and, and just parsing them out to different characters. You know, like, like the Billy character felt very Albert Finney. So he gets some of the Albert Finney lines from Saturday night and Sunday morning. Uh, you know, Cleo is very much a Sheila Delaney kind of creation. <laughs> Her mother's name is Helen, go figure. I mean, it's just little tiny things like that just ended up finding their way in. Uh, some are really easy to spot. Some are so buried. <laughs> that that became kind of part of the game of creating it, you know, because it's not very dramatic. It doesn't have a huge, you know, um, there's the character development is is pretty minor. It's one of these kind of small story window type mm. approaches that you see in things like, you know, slacker or uh you know, dazed and confused. Um but I wanted it to be like I said, it's it's very much a, a metafiction homage, tribute, collage style uh of script. So it just it took time to layer and layer it and layer it. Um and and you know we had the time to kill because it took forever and a day to get the music licensed. So
1: Yeah, so what is that process? I know when anybody ever tries to do anything with David Bowie's music as a sort of Mm. biopic, it's like, they I can't believe why they keep bothering, because they won't let it go. So then it's like the film doesn't have Bowie songs, and it's a bit like, well, actually, you know, as we know with Elton John and Freddie Mercury and Queen, you know, the film is like, well, you put the music in, you're sort of 80% on the home run here, aren't you? Whereas you put exactly. a Bowie film together and you don't have the music, you're just thinking, man, I can't believe you've even gone to that. Yeah,
0: I don't understand it. I mean, in my documentary work, you know, I'm very much uh, an authorized kind of maker. You know, I do everything with the collaboration and cooperation of the artist. Um, I don't know why you would do it otherwise, you know? Uh so this, it was just that was the decision. You know, it's like I, luckily, you know, a, a first draft came together relatively quickly. So you're like, all right, there's about 20 songs in here. Maybe there were 22, I think, when I first did it. Um, and uh, yeah, that that was just our decision. That it, it's kind of part why it took, partly why it took so long was before we really could go out to the world and try to raise money or finance or anything. I we needed to know that. Morrissey Marr, publishing masters, all of that was sort of agreed upon. You know, yes. I think very early on we did get kind of a an in theory thumbs up. You know, saying you know we, we we're all on board with this in theory. This is the number. Good luck. You know, and then then goes the slow work of like you know cart before horse. You know, people going well. Have you actually licensed the music? Well you've got to give us money to finance the movie and then we can pay for the music. Yeah, but we don't want to give you the money unless we know the music. You know, it was just became this dance of trying to get the two sides to meet. Um, yes. And my music supervisor, Liz Gallagher, just went, she's one of the best in the business, uh, truly went above and beyond to a point where I, I don't know if she ever wants to speak to me again. <laughs> it was so <laughs> difficult, but uh yeah, it, it was it was slow going, but, you know, steady as you go. We just, I wouldn't let it go. No. It was just one of those things you get so far along, you just think, I have to see this through now, don't I?
1: Yes, abso- absolutely. I mean, it's it's the sort of thing that most of us don't really realize that part of the process. We just see the finished product and then we sort of mm-hmm. pick over it, but then realizing, you know, the, the time scale. And also, as we know, I could imagine, you know, as a sort of, uh, you know, Johnny probably being quite easy to work with as a yes, no, you know, dear old Mozart, you know, anything could happen. You know, it could be just anything, couldn't it really? Let's face it. You would not know how to sort of guess that or even second guess it or whether it's a flat no. So obviously you must put so much emotion into this and time knowing that actually it just might stay in the folder and never happen, which is, is quite a risk, isn't it?
0: It truly is. Um, it still seems like a risk. I don't know, It's even then it's done. Um, but yeah, I mean, luckily, you know, I I had a few films under my belt and was able to keep making other things while this was kind of simmering in the background. I mean, in the time it took me to make this, I must have almost my entire career unfolded. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I must have done at least five or, or six things. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's amazing. I just remember each, during each other film, going, okay, that was when we got the rights to that. And then, oh, Morrissey changed management. So we had to start again. And then, you know, oh, then I was making that other film and I was on the phone with casting, you know, and like, of course, then the cast comes together and falls apart three or four times just because of the time it's taking to get things together. Uh, but yeah, no, it is it is a risk, but again, you know, we having such a strong kind of positive reaction initially sort of put wind in our sails. And we just thought, we, we've we got, I mean, no one's been able to grab this number of songs from this artist in one place, you know? And then of course you just hope the film holds up. Um, part of the success of it was because we weren't trying to tell their story, mm. you know, um, which would have been a whole other thing. Um, so yeah, it's a loving tribute. Uh, it it almost killed us, and it costs a lot of money. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's it's an homage to a pocket of nostalgia um, that I'm trying desperately to protect and hold on to as time goes by. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, so
1: well, I, I I sort of watched it, and and uh, I think what some of the. The emotion um, reminded me and the atmosphere of those films like Diner, which had Mickey Rourke in. And then the other film was, um, was it The Last Picture Show with Jeff Bridges? These, mm. these great coming of yeah. age yeah. movies where, you know, it, it's, it's kind of condensed into a very short period of time. But there's a lot of characters and a lot of different backstories to each character. So I think that was kind of what I was kind of getting from watching the film. Plus, you know, wave upon wave of kind of, um, you know, every song was like, you know, had, you know, was ensconced in my DNA. So it, it is obviously an amazing film for the fans. And then there was all the references, which, you know, as you could probably imagine, the Smiths fans are a bit, you know, like any obsessive fans, are a bit odd. So you know, people are going to sort of, sort of pick up on lots of things and probably try and catch you out on certain things. But you know, there was a reference, wasn't it, <laughs> to Betty Blue and all those kind of moments as well, which is obviously because in the eighties there were certain the art house cinema at that time, you know, had Betty Blue diva. A Razorhead, mm-hmm. you know, all those late night films. And the 80s was very much divided between the indie world and the mainstream. So it was very easy. You either went Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Trevor Horn production sound, or it was the indie nerdy kids who, you know, looked a bit, in, you know, kind of um, gangly and full of doubt and uh, anxiety. Hurrah, check me out. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> that was quite good. So it was, a, it was a lovely kind of bit. And what was interesting as well, because you probably realise that, the passing of time you know is like 20 to 25 30 years you know something happens and then we just go whatever and then later on people start to look back and think oh wait a minute that's quite interesting so there's been films on like the wedding presents george best came out there was the film on the chills the go-betweens the slits there was always even the nightingales with robert lloyd came out very recently mm. called king rocker so you've obviously picked up on this kind of passing of you know this this time lag of, of um of people like myself that would really be enjoying it plus you've got this other market which is probably going to appeal as a teen person who's not really heard of the smith so it's quite an interesting juggling act you've got here
0: yeah i mean ultimately uh i i just kind of made something for a very small audience in mind you know um we would have sometimes we'd tussle a bit with um not all some of the producers uh there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this (laughs) who who wanted to kind of maybe pull some of the references out and oh it's too fan-centric or it needs to appeal to a broader audience to a point where i just feel like if you're trying to make something for everybody you have essentially made something for nobody you know what i mean like you have to just lean right into the vision and make it as specific as possible uh and then if you know, but then here we are with a cast of 20-somethings, some of whom had already, you know, had been into the Smiths, some who who weren't, but who were really connecting with the music, connecting with the characters and the story. So, um, you know, you, you don't, I, I it's always hard when people would say like, well, who is this for, you know? I'd say, what's for me? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, it's for me. Um, and I'm sure a few other people are going to dig it too. Uh, I love that you flagged Diner, that like everyone is always leaning into the, oh, it's like a a John Hughes kind of thing and this, that and the other. And yeah, of course, growing up, you know, Pretty in Pink and those movies were kind of like our movies, but there was always a little disconnect in a way. It always felt like someone trying to tell us what our lives were like, as opposed to like, oh, no, this is what our lives are like. And Diner, it, you know, it's one of my favorites. It was something we really looked at a lot. Um, and I made sure everybody watched it um, for tone and style. And just especially given that the Smith's aesthetic was like the 1950s, laid on top of the 80s. So we weren't trying to make a film where it was like the 80s. It was like, no, no, the 80s are the present day when mm. we're working but what would that present day be influenced by? It would be influenced by the 50s, a little bit of the 60s and you know what I mean? So we tried to kind of infuse it with that kind of a spirit too. And like, and actually a film, it was funny, I was going through uh, some old folders and found a bunch of stills uh, that I was using for reference and there's a uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a, f- a brilliant film of the period and people remember it as being, you know, the Sean Penn and the kind of the more out there sort of a- comedy aspects of it. But it's really got great character work and, like, Jennifer Jason Leigh's early performance, and the cinematography is incredible. And uh, it was—I was looking at some frames and comparing them to some of our frames and going, "Oh yeah, we we kind of did really go in there and try to create a very specific look that you yes. know." Referenced a different kind of 80s than I think a lot of people would normally flag today.
1: Yeah, know. but then during the 80s, we, you know, I mentioned those art house fil- films. There was, I just mm-hmm. remember the other two when I, there was Rumblefish and The Outsiders, mm-hmm. which was the yep. um, the famous director, um, Cobbler, Cobbler, thanks. Yeah, yeah. The amazing incredible. Dylan at the time, which we all sort of thought, who's he? And he's come. So again, that was mm-hmm. very niche in the same way as Jim <laughs> Jim with his Down by Law um, Mm -hmm. black and white films that were quite clearly not going for the big glossy. I suppose Pretty in Pink was quite a cynical film, like St. Elmo's Fire, wasn't it? It was kind of, it was very mainstream. So I think you're right in the sense it's better to, to say, look, there are gonna be these geeky little people as well as the old fan who is going to be tempted to go and see this as well. So it's like you do have to get it right because, why well, don't you don't have to. <laughs> it's best to, isn't it, really? If you, if yes. you know, whatever. As long as you think, well, that's the best. I didn't sell out. And at least you know that no one can catch you out like those nerdy Smiths fans who are going to probably try to catch you out and then go.
0: Oh, they're coming for us already. I can just, I, I don't look at comments. <laughs> I just can't. It's Life is too short. And, you know, you know, you have to, people have to understand, like, you know, I'm 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 one of you. I'm like that's my gener. I was first generation, maybe a little younger. I mean, I didn't. I don't think, I think the first one I did get was Hatful of Hollow, for example. Like you know, oh, I missed the debut album when it came out. Uh, you know, I'm 51. Uh, I managed to see them on the Queen is Dead tour, uh, and that's about it. But I still can hang. And I'm 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 all, like the the Queen is Dead box that came out, like the album, the live record is them in, it's a show in Boston, and i I' actually been at that show, so I'm like, I can hang on to that little bit of trivia, you know, like, I'm one of those idiots screaming in that audience there, yes. um, so the- it comes from, a, it comes from a really real place, you know, and it's, and, and it also, the narratives, they are, they're my stories, you know what I mean, it is, like, very personal, and those are, those characters are my friends, and that was us, you know, and written in such a way like I said I didn't want to impose too much plot and I wanted to let the music breathe in such a way that like you say once it hits you you can then just let your own nostalgia take over in a way you know and then you can kind of fill it in yes. with your own feelings and your own emotions and and all that
1: so obviously you know people are going to have an opinion even before they've watched it which is kind of tedious but then the the obviously the four members of the band when do they get to see it and when do you kind of hear whether a they've seen it and b what they think? Cause that might be I, more of a sleepless night, mind it.
0: I don't know. You know, uh, I think Johnny was always waiting to just see it when it was done, done, done. Like he didn't want to see a, a cut before we locked it. Um, I think his, I know his managers had a look. I don't know. It's funny. And more, you know, I, I'm very good friends with, uh, One of Morrissey's guitar players uh, currently uh, lives right over the hill from me, and we are very good drinking buddies. So um, I get uh, kind of an inside scoop from time to time on what's going on in uh, Morrissey world. And I know he's seen the trailer, thought it was fabulous, um, but he's sitting on the link to the film, and I'm just (laughs) biting my nails. What do they think? And the other two, yeah, I, I like the producers are have been able have, i believe shared it with everybody yeah i don't know i haven't gotten any feedback from right. them yet was that but, was that you boz, know
1: was that boz Bora or alan white no
0: no it's it's jesse tobias right. player yes and the current the current band but uh yeah no uh we're waiting to hear it's interesting um but you know there's they, they all seem to be supporting it on the on the social media um you know smith's official has been playing the trailer and um and all that so yeah uh, hopefully it just there there has always just seemed to be a lot of goodwill towards it from the inside anyway so yes you know we're hoping we're hoping they enjoy it
1: good good <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they'll love it but just on the slightly practical front then when did you well, you got your cast then you probably lost the cast then you got more cast then you lost them and then eventually you think crikey this really is the real deal when did filming start what, you, what um, year was that 2018 2018
0: Blime. yeah we started yeah I know uh, I just put a little uh, thing on my Instagram today I was looking at old photographs and it was October it was first week in October. We settled in uh, Troy, which is upstate New York, Hudson River Valley area, which doubled as Denver, Colorado, and um, set up our production office. So yeah, we shot uh, mid to, we shot like mid October into early November. So it was a twenty two day shoot that I think became like 21 days because we got rained and snowed on at one point <laughs> uh towards the end uh which hampered us even further you know it was already a very tight tight schedule a lot of compromises in pre-production um but you know uh yeah it was it was in the can and then uh it took quite a while to cut in between me having to work cuz I had Multi, it was just one of those things that it, just the green light got turned on while i was finishing two other documentaries so it was a real stressful uh, period of having to hide from our other producers <laughs> <clears throat> wondering where the cut of this other film is while i'm you know across the country shooting a film it was just it was a it was a, it was a lot yeah um yeah
1: and then last year you did all the editing bringing it together
0: Um, Well, from, from like January of 2019, you know, the edit started, it just, it just kind of, yeah, it took, it took a good year plus to, I mean, it was actually like locked, God, I don't even know, to be honest with you, since the pandemic time has just become this a completely different thing, right? And I'm trying to remember when things happened. it must have been about a year ago, though, that we actually ended up with an actual tight picture lock. Um, yeah, no, it would have been it would have been just at the tail end of 2019, going into 2020, because then I turned around and I shot an entire documentary series um, that we, you know, developed, shot, cut, and aired <laughs> before Shoplifters even had a, a release date. So, yes. yeah, yeah, th- things moved in very very strange patterns.
1: That's a that's an amazing world you must move in, actually. And you must have been really pleased with the cast because um Helena Howard was amazing mm-hmm. in the film. And that must have been um, a joy.
0: Well, you know, yeah, we had lost uh our lead. Sasha Lane was uh slated to play Cleo and just out of the blue, just pulled out at the at the very last minute. Um and so I was just we were just kind of figuring out well who the hell do we put in place of her and i just happened to look at uh some notices coming out of sundance that year and her perf- helena's performance in madeline's madeline was just getting all of these hosannas and just one review in particular that kind of you know called aligned her with like the the general and spirit you know that kind of Cassavetti's vibe and uh, I mean it's a bit of a cliche now but like truly I went to school with the guy who wrote the book on Cassavetes like my film education was like Cassavetes and then maybe Casablanca you know (laughs) as an undergraduate Ray Carney like owned 16 millimeter prints of all of John's films uh, some before they had been put on VHS even so we really got schooled on them really early in those those performances uh, by just you know they sear into your your brain they're just so unique and uh just she's truly one of the greats so to have critics going like it's a little general (laughs) i just was like i don't care she's the one get get helena howard um and you know uh i met her and i think our first chat she had her little joy division t-shirt on and was running from her apartment into a car and going so so she was on the go talking to me on her phone, uh, but I learned that you know her mother and her late quote uncle like her mom's best friend like she had like a you know that gay uncle uh, growing up who had passed away a while back uh, they were total new waivers. so she kind of grew up weaned right. on the sounds of the 80s so here's this she's barely 20 but she's already like steeped in the music of the 80s. Her mom was like a total goth, you know, and was into Susie and The Cure and all this stuff. Um, And she showed up to set holding a a Smith's tour program, Smith's in Scotland. Her uncle had followed them around the UK that year. Um, He was a super fan. So she had this little program of her late uncle and she was clutching it to her chest but she she came and she showed it to us and you know it ends up in her bedroom set. Uh yeah. So she and she so she really felt it deeply, you know? Yeah. Um so I think we're really lucked out because you know here's someone she yeah, she really had a feeling for it. And it it, 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 it was not, it was completely authentic. Um and, and she's a great actress. She's really on the edge. I mean the emotions are just right there under the surface. Um and she just performed beautifully. I mean, they all did. Like, we really did luck out. I love, I love our cast. They all just did a spectacular job.
1: Well, I know. have to say the DJ, um, I can't remember his uh, name.
0: Joe, Joe Manganiello.
1: He was amazing. Just played it so well.
0: A Legend. He's so good. He's so good. When I mean, we he he was attached first. I mean, him and his brother produced. The, they're the they're really like the ride or die. Uh, producers of the film and uh, just, you know, had our, you know, had my back every step of the way. They're so great. Um, and he's so good. <clears throat> I think when he first saw the script, he went, ah, oh, something, I, it's like, I can keep my shirt on for a change, <laughs> you know, because he's always, you know, being asked to strip down in like things like True Blood and obviously uh, Magic Mike <laughs> um, so yeah he and it's funny he was his story is such that like he was kind of a metalhead jock in high school who had a sports injury so he couldn't play sports for a while so ended up in the drama club and had a girlfriend who got him hooked on the smiths so he really had kind of both sides of that i mean he really truly is a a a metalhead at heart but he's also a total nerd, like he's into Dungeons and Dragons. And, um, but he w- it was a total package, you know, he really, uh, he just got it. And that, you know, and crafting that character was so much fun. Just even figuring out the look, you know, yes. it was like, should I get Lemmy's mustache? I'm like, yes, you need <laughs> Lemmy's mustache. Perfect. And his jacket, you know, he built his battle vest with all the patches. It was really, um, it was a really organic, uh creation
1: well there was the la uh metal hair scene at that time wasn't there so because mm-hmm. it was quite just kind of i don't know if you've seen it very briefly but i was thinking about the people who would be watching it at that age you know the, the early 20 somethings because i recently saw the, the well some of the, the billy eilish film that came out mm. apple and it was kind of interesting sort of being at that generation who doesn't understand the appeal of billy eilish but then thinking those people but they must relate to the lyrics of the Smiths. And obviously you said that Helena is already part of that scene. So I'd imagine, because bands like The Killers often reference the Smiths, don't they? They often go, oh, yeah, that Mm was one of our first bands. So the Smiths and Morrissey, especially in America, must have quite a following, you know, like the parents, as well as the, the, um, the children who are now sort of quite young people. So I would imagine there would be quite a big audience for this
0: yeah it's it's really hard to tell you know i mean here in los angeles you know it's it's legendary that he's got a cult-like following with the young uh you know mexican-american kids um there's a whole school of thought around why that is um you know uh but yeah it 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 hit us in a very different way you know um the first generation would have picked it up through things like K-Rock here in LA, which probably helped break them. And then it may have landed in, you know, uh, stations on the East coast and made its way around through independent record stores. I mean, I worked in a record store in high school, you know, obviously little autobiographical tidbits all over the place. So <laughs> I was that kid. I, I was the, the, you know, the kid in the trench coat who worked behind the, the desk at this little record store on Main Street and I just played the Smiths all day and all the records, you know, the, all the 4AD stuff and some punk records and whatnot um, in a town that was very mainstream, kind of, you know, beach resort kind of place. So, uh, but yeah, it found its audience. And, and now, I mean, what's interesting being friendly with Jesse is I, I can get, I get like reports on audiences like when they tour here there and wherever and that he sees the the ages get continuing to sort of they're either like maintaining or getting younger like they'll still be like masses of 20 year olds screaming the lyrics back at them yeah not just here like more like you know uh, tours in eastern europe or they'll go to places that they haven't been in maybe 20 you know 10 15 years or whatever and uh they're they're just legions of legions of them just shouting the lyrics back out the music and they're all kids um so i i I have to know that there's there's an appeal and there's a there's an audience just waiting for it out there somewhere
1: oh well i'm (laughs) you know either
0: either they're waiting to like just turn the snark on and just you know try to try to tear it down or they're just going to get on board and, and dig it you know um so we'll see
1: God, that must be quite hard for you emotionally, think, or do you just have to?
0: It happens with every film. That's the, that's the trouble with the films that I make. It, it, and it's what's been, what's been frustrating about trying to build like even a following on like social media, every film it's like I, 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 it's a new fan base comes through, you know? Uh, for a year, just teeny boppers and Girls Who Love the Backstreet Boys were all over me, you know? <laughs> and then they go away and I'm like, oh, now everyone's like a Japanese metalhead when I did We Are It's just you just re, you just kind of move through these different fan groups. Yeah. And sometimes they overlap and there'll be occasional ones that want to, like, be interested in everything you are doing. But uh, yeah, but you they're always so passionate. um, And it's like I feel the same way when I like again, like I see something someone else is doing about something I love. your defenses immediately go up, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, bring it on. It better be good, (laughs) you know? And you understand it because you think, you feel like you own it in a way. And we all do. We all own a little piece of these bands. Um, And you try to do it justice. The docs are very different because obviously we're telling the stories of the artists and they're on board and they're working with us. And it feels like we're all in it together. Whereas, yeah, this one is more about, this is kind of, it is emotional and it is a vulnerable place to be because it it is my story and i just was audacious enough to think that i could get the smiths to give me 20 songs because that was the soundtrack of our lives i mean the original idea before the notion of doing this thing in denver with the hold up and all that was more of a just an 80s story you know it yeah. would have been more of like a pretty and pink where i would have gone after 20 different artists and It would have been all those songs we were listening to back then, but just doing something about one singular artist, it just feels so cool and great to be able to just dig in and then again, wrap it in the style and uh, substance of one artist, luckily, who is so referential and stylish and has so many specific signifiers that you can draw from, you know? It would have been hard to do it about anybody else.
1: Yes. I, I mean, just lastly, I mean, I suppose when you do that writing thing, writing thing, um, you probably realise, especially when you see people asking for advice, realising actually it's getting too complicated. It has to be a lot more clear of what your narrative is. I do remember hearing people who, um, who were involved in the Jim Steinman Bat Out of Hell, and I think they... Ye- they kept sort of rewriting it because it was like quite complicated to begin with. And it's like, actually, it doesn't need to be this complicated. It's quite a straightforward, you know, it's a straightforward musical with meatloaf songs. It's this happens, you know, like Mm -hmm. nice girl from, you know, little, you know, spoiled family, you know, the gang who live in the sewers, you know, meatloaf songs, bit of a fight, someone gets killed. End of story. People are just going to love it. Don't don't start (laughs) sort of bringing in too many complicated narratives that, yeah, the audience going what happened there you know it's like oh mm-hmm. I don't know. yeah so you you know you must have felt that moment when he went the dj holding up that's it let's just not get complicated and start going into other characters you know it doesn't need that much complication because you've got the kind of narrative there haven't you
0: yeah i mean that's the thing it was like the original treatment that was written i mean in a way part of me feels like my god i had 10 years why did i Why did I keep it so simple? You know, I could have kind of recrafted it. I mean, we really just kind of followed the original story that was outlined, which was just like, they go here, they go there, they go there, they go there. It's just really like following these kids through a night, you know, with little, very small dramas, little tiny revelations, and, you know, trying to just, you know, tease out these little character arcs. You know, I I kind of do hate you know, it, and it's gonna it gets promoted in that way where it's like you know that night that changes your life or the you know one one night changes everything. It's like it's really never like that, is it? You know what I mean? You you have a wild night out, and you may have these small little dramas that unfold over the course of hours, <laughs> you know, and there there are significant, there are subtle but significant shifts in your lives and relationships, and um, that's kind of the the little the small world. That we wanted to explore. Actually, and I believe in the first outline or the the DJ, like it was just sort of like happening in the background. But I just thought, after we, I think we wrote one draft, I'm like, we need to be in that radio station. Like that's, we have to go there and spend half of our time. So that kind of became kind of, that was like, you know, the character that we, you know, I invented. Uh, to create this kind of Greek chorus, and he's the sort of the opposition to what these kids are all about. Yet, if you really look at it, I always looked at it as in a way that Dean and the DJ are really the same guy, just maybe they're separated by a generation. Yeah. And like, in, you know, if you put Dean in the DJ spot, there's going to be a kid coming along in 10 or 15 years who's going to point a gun at him and make him play something like that he hates or whatever but there is a continuum i think partly partly like growing up in the 80s and at a certain age being sort of you know you're in the suburbs your influences and your world is relatively contained so you think the world begins and ends with the smiths and the cure new order and all this stuff but then as you Get older, you start realizing, wait a minute, they they listened to all that music that I probably thought was crap. But, you know, of course, Johnny Marr listened to the Rolling Stones. And, you know, if you look at Morris's record collection or the things that they were listening to, it was the 70s, it was the 60s, it was the 50s. So then you start going back and you realize how everything really is just built on everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I, I love those two characters so much, because the idea really was that they, are very much the same person uh, and actually have quite a lot in common.
1: Well, Uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting what you were saying. There was a lot there because I know Johnny Marr used to sort of occasionally want to play disco sort of music on the tour mm -hmm. Morris Morrissey was like, God, I don't want disco. I don't want funk. You know, obviously this is when the band is starting to have more tensions. And then reading Morrissey's book, I just remember, you know, all these kind of 60s, obscure 60s artists. I mean, he loved Scylla Black, but he also loved all these other people that I, I had to keep stopping and making notes and then going to Spotify mm-hmm. and listening to the song. And, you know, so he was like, you know, obsessed with all these kind of sixties kind of um, mostly female singers, you know, which, which were really obscure, you know, B sides to a single that mm-hmm. he loved. And, uh, and so, yes, you're, you're yeah, you're right in, in a sense that everything does continue and everything comes, you know, cause also Johnny Marr loved the work of Pentangle, which, you know, I think Morrissey mm-hmm. mentions a few times, like, cool you, <laughs> like, you know And bert yance who's this other kind of folk mm-hmm. guitarist but then interestingly enough i've been doing this uh, c86 show that i realized that each each band has a, almost a five-year narrative they get together they have the 12 mm-hmm. months they get the single the album the second album tricky they break up one of the things that happens is that the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds want their band don't really care about the band that was there five years before so almost like when the smiths broke up there was a new party inside you know on the scene there was the uh, kind of the house music the acid house music then there was the seattle scene as well and also you know that was what the next generation were going into so you're right with that you know we become the person we become that conservative person goes But these lyrics make no, you know, you can't like, you know, like, I don't know, some rapper from the Marilyn Mm -hmm. Manson. You know, I don't think many Smith fans would go Marilyn Manson. i really get that. But a 16 Mm -hmm. to 18 year old would love Marilyn Manson, you know, or Billie Eilish. Mm -hmm. We all go, I don't really get her. But then it's like, yeah, but I'm not 16 or 18 anymore. And you mentioned Lemmy, because Lemmy always said, you know, his favorite music was the stuff that he listened to from the 50s. So it was Buddy Holly. It was Little Mm -hmm. Richard. It was Elvis. It was Eddie Cochran, you know. But you can only be that age once, and that's the music that you listen to twenty four seven. You know how mm-hmm. much you might like the other music that came along. You're not the same person, so eventually you do kind of feel like granddad at the gig. You know the old <laughs> dude was there, even if you might be thirty. You know you're the old man. You go, don't touch. Just you know.
0: I know. I re- I desperately try to hoover up new things and keep myself open and keep the antenna up. But yeah, it is It is that, it's just, it's, it's chemistry though, isn't it? Your brain is still growing and you're still, there's that, those, you know, the formative years are such because you're, you're, you're still being formed on a cellular level. So that music just gets locked in there and uh, it's your comfort place. It's the thing you go back to. I mean, when my imagine, you know, when you're, you just, when songs just kind of, you know, come to the surface, you know, it's always something from the 80s you know uh it's funny i was asked to put a playlist together we're gonna have this big playlist on spotify soon that's it's sort of like you know the smiths and friends it's going to be the songs from the film other favorites from the catalog and then just sort of like my vision of like these are the records that the characters have in their collections and so i just started compiling things and looking through my vinyl and for some reason almost 80% of it came from 1985. <laughs> just without thinking, I'd be like, oh, that micro Disney or that Chameleons or that, or this, or, you know, that Susie song or this, that, and the other. And they all were from, I was like, my God, they're all from 85, like Mighty Lemon Drops, whatever it was, it was It was all just from a, you know, and of course I pulled from some earlier stuff, um, but for the most part, I was like, my God, that's so weird. It just <laughs> happened like that. But yes. it's not, of course. That was that would have been my like heyday, right? When Absolutely. the best to me the best things were coming out and like the my favorite album by this, that and the other were that was eighty-five. That was I think when I was probably enthralled to music the most, or it just peaked at that point. So yes. well, yeah, there is something very, you know, very deep about those those memories.
1: It is it is interesting. Just last I mean last thing nearly. I mean, because 85 is an amazing year, but I've always put 87 as the greatest year of music because when you look <laughs> at that kind of list, of list of albums that came out, you just think, 87, my God. That was just about then, you know, all that period, I just look and you just look at the list of records and you think, you yeah, the 80s oh, was boy. a bit grim, but my God, the music was amazing. Mm. Anyway, look, <laughs> thank you ever so much. And I just have to say, you know, even though one sometimes is a bit of a boring geek, It was an amazing film. I loved it, and I really enjoyed it. So, uh, thank you. Thank you. You know, it was it was a it was just fun, and I just you know, I suppose you can sort of do you know. I was talking to my partner about it. I said, you know, she said, "Oh, what was it like?" I said, "Well, you can either go disliking something before you even listen to it or watch it or went to see the exhibition, or you just think, fuck it." I just want to enjoy it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to pick anything apart. You know, I'm just, I, I, I was that person a few decades ago probably, but now <laughs> you know, it's like life's too short. You know, you just want mm-hmm. to enjoy the ride and go, you know, you know, and you know, like the referencing was just amazing. And the quotes from Oscar Wilde, the, the Betty Blue moment, you know, it all just made me smile. So that was a fantastic. I mean,
0: I, I, I've got the lyrics from Ludus, buried in there somewhere um you know uh I, we were thinking of trying to run a contest like catch them all <laughs> you know like uh i i have a whole annotated footnoted version of the screenplay I've, I, I, part of me felt like we should publish that and i'm sure the fans would eat it up um i might try to do something with it so people can kind of like track back and, and go oh oh like, oh, I caught that one, or I missed that one, or maybe there's more in there that we've forgotten about or something, but it's so coded, and uh, there's I so much buried, yeah.
1: I didn't catch it, but did, I might have just missed it, but did you did you include the line I dreamt about you last night?
0: It ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, <laughs> we had it in there, and I don't know, there, there were a few battles that I fought and lost. Um, it was in originally it's in a screenplay. Uh it was the the it was Dean kind of she says that to her to Cleo as she walks in and she kind of ignores him, just would say, I drunk like You know, and people just I don't know, again, the, the stuff that I don't necessarily want to go into, uh behind the scenes battles with certain people with certain opinions, uh about how referential it should be or you know is that corny does that make sense does it change the intention of the c i don't know there it, it was a lot uh but there were a few things that yeah they were in there on the page right. but uh that one we lost sadly uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe it would have been too obvious i know some yeah. people may feel like some of that stuff it's a bit of an eye roll but you know uh there's going to be so many that you're just not going to catch. We wanted to try to bury them and make them yeah, feel absolutely. like, like yeah. dialogue. Like they're just pinging it back and forth. And I mean, I have a friend who will do that. We'll send emails to each other. It's just nothing but quotes from lyrics from who who knows what it's. It's totally geeky. I mean, we're those people. So
1: Actually, the one thing which was also amazing about the film, and I forgot to mention, was all the little bits of interview with the band throughout it. That was just yeah. gorgeous. Cause I had That was kind that.
0: of a, yeah, that was like a late breaking idea. I did, I showed it to a, actually I showed it to a group of friends in London. Uh, it's my colleague, Mia Bayes, great friend of mine. We made the Scott Walker film together. She produced that. And uh, just, we, I did a little test with a group of people who really didn't care much about the band. It, they're really coming in cold. And because they weren't fans, that was sort of the one thing they were like I-, I just need a little more like really what did they mean to these kids or what did they mean at all yeah. you know and she i think someone in the room just said oh you, could, you should put like a little documentary in there and that's what you do right like you're a music documentarian use use your chops and lean on that a bit uh and at the time i thought oh god like i know how expensive clips and licensing <laughs> is we're already so like against against it with the budget but uh we made it work and i'm really glad we did it was a great suggestion and i it i feel like it just it was just enough to kind of kind of frame it and give you a sense of what they were and who they were um and it just kind of connects to the story and yeah that was that was like a late-breaking thing that kind of got laid in editorially and uh again i'm just there's some really last minute adjustments and suggestions that like turning like creating chapter headings you know it was the simplest thing in the world but like oh great it's like a double album we get force you get yes. four sides yeah. there we go perfect no, it, was,
1: it was you know i do love those because occasionally on a sort of late night when you can't go to sleep just going you know morrissey interviews from the 80s and just kind of just enjoy hearing his uh, opinion and so seeing it in the film I thought it was was genius. You know, it was really nice. You know,
0: back when you could listen to the opinions and <laughs> not be horrified. Uh, but we won't get there. We won't go there right now. That's a whole <laughs> other interview. <isn't> it? <laughs> Ugh, oh boy.
1: Oh boy, it's too tricky. Let's not. Let's <laughs> not,
0: let's, let's yeah. Let's not. <laughs> I know. Anyway, it's let's a, stay in the '80s. It's a much safer place.
1: Anyway, look. Thank you ever so much for this, and um, oh, yes, such I'll, a pleasure. I can always send you the link if you would, if want to link and. Um, Love it. We'll okay. we'll we'll,
0: we'll, th- we'll post it on everything. Um, okay. Take care and thanks again. Take care. You bet. Have a good night, David. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye.
1: And that, dear listener, is how you finish a conversation. I love putting those, leaving those pieces in. It always sounds so fumbly. I am English. We love to fumble. Anyway, look, that was me, David Eastall, in conversation with the film director, Stephen Keak, talking about Shoplifters of the World. That's just coming out March 2021. Um, I've seen it. It's a very beautiful film. Do watch it because, um, let's face it, in these moments of time... It's great to watch a great, great film. And what a soundtrack. Anyway, look, I'm just babbling. If you want to contact me for some random reason, make it nice and positive, though, uh, you can um, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Do, do C86 show. If you if you want to um, post something nasty, don't bother, please. Just go and see a therapist. They're cheaper. And, um, well, they're not that much cheaper, really. Uh, but also, all these interviews have been um, archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 show. If you like indie pop, fill your boots. If you don't, I don't know. Why would you be listening to this show? Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.